Hello and welcome to the One Foot Down Podcast. This is our 47th episode. We haven't done a podcast in a while. Uh, we're going to recap a bunch of things over the past month. I am Eric Murtaugh, the editor of OneFootDown.com. With me today, I have two uh, of our writers going to talk some football with me. Uh, back after a long absence is our favorite Canadian, Lars. Lars, what's going on? Not much, man. Just trying to stay warm up here. All right. Uh, you said you're going to do this podcast in French. Uh, are you going to follow through with that? Yeah, no, that was uh, pure propaganda, actually, Eric. Okay. <laughs> All right. We got uh, one of our new writers today is going to join us on the podcast. Um, you know him on the site as Young Curmudgeon. His name is Phil. He's coming to us from Grenada. So we have two international writers on the podcast today with me. Phil, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, trying to stay dry. It's been uh, pretty much monsooning down here for the last couple of days. Hey, I'll take that. It's about two degrees here in uh, western New York. How's it? What's the weather like for you, Lars? Uh, it's uh, it's about zero degrees and uh, really windy. It's been a cold, snowy winter so far. Is that zero degrees Celsius? Zero degrees Celsius. Yeah, I don't understand that Fahrenheit stuff. <laughs> okay, it's colder where I am. You you have those mountains protecting you, isn't that how how it goes? Yeah, we're uh, I'm about probably about an hour and a half from the mountains. So what we get is uh, we'll get the systems come over the mountains and then warm air kind of coming running down the mountains and across the prairies and uh, it can get windy. But it's usually a warm wind. So. All right, let's talk some football. We're going to recap the uh, bowl win over LSU, the Music City Bowl. The Irish won that game 31-28. Um, I don't want to say shocking win, but quite a surprise. Uh, not a lot of people didn't expect Notre Dame to win that game. I didn't pick Notre Dame to win. I thought they'd do a little bit better than maybe some of the experts were saying. Irish pulled it off 31-28. Um, you know, a lot of people were saying throughout the season that Notre Dame needed to uh, slow things down, run the ball on offense, keep the defense off the field. Kind of pulled that off in this bowl game to a T. It's kind of interesting that uh, looking at some of the stats, LSU gained a whopping uh, 8.4 yards per play, which is actually the highest margin of the entire season that any opponent uh, put up on Notre Dame now. USC actually probably would have been up there had they not run the ball for the entire fourth quarter. Be that as may, uh, LSU racked up 436 yards. However, they had some terrible quarterbacking play. Um, Let's just give me your uh, you know overview thoughts of the bowl game. I'll start with you, Phil. I'll let the newbie uh, get his thoughts in here first on Notre Dame's win to give some momentum into the offseason. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I think, that there's a momentum component to it, and, and it's something that's we're gonna be, that the team is going to be able to take forward into 2015. I mean, but there are a lot of good things that I saw um, in terms of, you know, we came out with an offensive plan. We knew who, what we were dealing with. We knew what going to be in front of us in terms of LSU defense they were going to play. And we went out and executed. And that was really what I was impressed by because I think a lot of the times in the last, especially the last four games, that, that four-game streak, is you didn't see execution on the offense. And they came in, they executed, and the defense was able to hold their own. I mean, yeah, they weren't on the field because of the offense was protecting them and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, they executed as well. And I was glad to see that sort of at the end of, the, at the end of all this uh, – sort of spiraling down during the month of November, they were able to make a serious uh, uh, and concerted effort to, to really execute when, when they needed to. Now, Lars, I didn't 
I was dreading the uh, two-quarterback system. You were a little bit more uh, excited for it. Uh, just your thoughts on that, maybe the, the game as a whole. Yeah, uh, well, first I'll comment on the two-quarterback system. You know, when I coach, certainly I've done it a few times, and to be honest with you, it never worked very effectively for me. But I've also, you know, thought that, you know, if you can do it at other positions, you can do it at quarterback. I realize the quarterback position is different, but when you have two people with different skill sets like that, I think it is doable. But what really sold me on it was uh, when I was, you know, I was doing a post on uh, on Malik Zerr and, and breaking down the film, I was very, very impressed, and it was it was noticeable how differently the offense operated when he was in there. And and uh, so, you know, I, I certainly understood what Brian Kelly saw, and I'm sure he continued to see see the same thing through practices. I was also surprised that uh, Zaire got the start, but uh, uh, and you know, I wondered how he was going to perform, but uh, I'm not. I can't say I'm surprised. Every time he's got an opportunity, he's performed, and I, I think we'll talk about this later, but the thing about him is he's got a real fire to him. In terms of the game, um, you know, maybe this will go down as a really important win. Maybe it won't. I think that depends on what happens in the future, but I think in, for the short term, it was really critical. Um, I think it was critical for people's perspective in and outside of the program. Um, you know, I think when Charlie Weiss was the coach, people wondered if Notre Dame could ever compete with a good SEC team, uh, certainly towards the end anyways, if, if they could ever be important on the national stage. I think, you know, since Brian Kelly's come in, I think some of those questions have, have gone now. Top recruits want to come to Notre Dame, and uh, we've had some success. And I think that just reaffirmed those beliefs, because certainly there were some cracks in the foundation uh, appearing. Uh Brian Kelly had sort of made a bit of a reputation for winning in November, and, and we had a pretty awful stretch of football in November, and, and I think uh, that win really helped it. And the other thing that stood out for me was the way that we won, and just going in there, and like Phil talked about, just pounding the ball. Uh, it was so nice not to see, to, to not see empty sets on third and short, and, you know, everybody knew we were running the ball, and that's okay. We were going to run the ball, and we were going to get that first down, so I really enjoyed that part of it. Now, we talked on the site about you kind of trying to rank this win among the best of the Kelly era. Um, I personally would have a hard time putting it in the top three or four. Um, I think it scored high marks for, you know, in terms of stopping the bleeding and stuff like that. Um, Phil, where did you land on that spectrum of, uh, you know, best wins of the Kelly era? Um, well, I mean, I, to be perfectly honest with you, the, the, the number one win has to be Oklahoma in 2012. I mean, there, there's no question about that in my mind. Um, but I agree with Lars on this, is that it's so difficult to say that this will the impact of it because we haven't seen the impact yet. You know, and, and I really, really think that given the, you know, even things that this game had nothing to do with, the recruiting class that was already in place, the talent that is going to be coming in in 2015, all those things sort of happened independent of this win, this win changes the perception of the fan base, probably changes the perception to a certain degree of the players, and going in 2015, it's a confidence booster. Now, if all those things can come together and generate a magical season for Notre Dame, then yeah, it's ranked a lot higher. But as of right now, I, I think I agree with you. It's definitely not top three, maybe not even top five of the Kelly era. I think it's just a wait-and-see sort of thing. Now, Lars, kind of go along with that topic, you see how this game kind of saved us from going through a really, really dark and depressing offseason. Instead, we're kind of looking at a more 
happy, optimistic season, but also at the same time, a lot of pressure coming up for 2015. Um, do you think this win kind of helped that? That kind of you know force, I guess, that we're going to see in 2015. Yeah, I you know I think it helps build some momentum going into two, 2015 for sure. And I would agree with you, Eric. I I think it relieves some of the pressure. And I think your point is really critical. There is going to be a lot of pressure on this team in 2015. Expectations are going to be sky high. Um, it's Notre Dame, so they're going to be inflated. They're going to be higher than they probably should be. Um, you know, and certainly if you're a, a head coach, this is going to sound odd, but this is actually a, a difficult position in many ways for Brian Kelly to begin. I, I mean, I, it's nice to have a lot of talent, and he certainly has that, but. Um, with these high expectations, there's just no margin for error, and we're still talking about a team with a, a pretty young defense. Uh, there's going to be some key players there, but there's going to be a lot of young guys playing a lot of critical minutes, and uh, it's really hard to win in college football. It's really hard to win with Notre Dame's schedule, and uh, um, you know it's so easy to have a slip up here or there, and and uh, you know with expectations to basically go to the playoff next year. Whew, I, I, you know, I think this is a good football team coming back, and they might be able to do it. But I wouldn't be stunned if they don't make the playoff. And I don't think that necessarily means that the program is in bad shape, that Brian Kelly is the wrong guy, or anything like that. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of pressure on this team, and I think that this that win definitely takes a bit of that pressure off. So kind of relieving some of that pressure going into the 2015, Notre Dame gets that vaunted six-star prospect as Ronnie Stanley uh, made his intentions known this week that he'll be returning to Notre Dame for his senior season. Actually, it would be his redshirt junior season. He actually has eligibility in 2016 as well. Um, let's just talk about a little bit about Stanley uh, before we maybe talk about his impact on the team. Kind of surprising, I thought, to see his, uh, his stock skyrocket over the past five or six weeks of the season, it seemed like maybe he was uh, a third-round pick, you know, a guy with great measurables and a lot of potential, but, you know, the past few weeks here, everyone's talking about him maybe being the first tackle, the second tackle, third tackle, first-round pick. Um, pretty amazing uh, uh, story for him, even though he was a pretty highly regarded uh, recruit. What do, you, what do you think, Phil? I mean, his play, I mean, there, there was a market improvement in his play from the USC game to the uh, to the bowl game. Even if it you know, if he was still playing physical, if he was still fundamentally sound and all those sort of things, the fire that he brought into that game uh, just I think set everybody on fire. Because if you look all the down that line, they had probably their best game all year. And I think that, that followed suit, you know, right after right after Ronnie basically leading the way on that one. I mean between him and the other guy I loved in that game was Mike McGlinchey. I mean, you, I mean, it wasn't just his play on, on right tackle, but it was all the extracurricular stuff mm -hmm. after, in between plays, him getting in guys' faces, him having to be separated from defensive guys by the refs. I mean, that was a nastiness, you know, that probably is inherent to him and characteristic of him, but I think something that was injected by Ronnie, by, you know, by his, uh, his play, but also by his attitude. So I could totally see how all of a sudden, especially in, a, in an off year at tackle, he would have skyrocketed that much. I mean, but at the same time, I think he does need a whole year of that kind of production before right. he becomes, you know, guaranteed first rounder. You know, there was one play in that game. Um, I'm not sure 
what we ran on the play, but Folston took the ball to the left side over on Stanley's side of the field and absolutely trucked a DB uh, of LSU. And, you know, this stuck out to me. Stanley just took a beeline right to where the tackle was. It happened right on the sideline. Folston kind of ran out of bounds right after the play, and you could kind of sense that Stanley kind of knew that this was an SEC team and there's probably going to be a little bit of pushing after Folston just trucked this uh, helpless defensive back. And, uh, you know, Folston got up, and uh, it was just a great feeling to see the defensive back kind of just walk away with this huge Stanley there picking up Folston, and they both run back to the huddle. I think that's kind of what Phil was talking about. You just kind of saw this extra edge to the whole team, especially from Stanley. Uh, what are your thoughts, Lars? Yeah, I, I, you know, I would echo both your sentiments, and and the other thing I'd add is just how critical experience is on the offensive line, and and uh, how difficult it was to replace Zach Martin, and and certainly Stanley did a good job, and I need to, you know, I'll probably do a post on him at some point, watch him a little more closely, but I think that extra year of experience, I think he made a really good decision, and. Uh, that extra year of experience is going to help his development. He is definitely going to grow. He's not anywhere near his ceiling. And I think that opportunity to really be a leader is going to help him in the long run as well. So uh, we're very fortunate. If you can get continuity on the offensive line, which it looks like we're certainly going to have continuity next year, that makes a big, big difference. It's a really tough position, and guys got to work together, and uh, and it just takes time. So, uh, you know, uh offensive line that was inconsistent last year has the potential now to be a very consistent, very, very good offensive line here next year. I always thought it would be kind of uh, crazy for a redshirt sophomore to, to declare early, especially for an offensive lineman at Notre Dame. I don't know if that's ever actually happened before. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on the, on the bowl game before we move on to uh, another topic here? I mean, the only thing I would say, I just absolutely love seeing two tight ends on the field at the same time. I mean, you saw it a lot, and it worked. You know, they, they went for passes, they blocked, they did everything. I thought it was great. You even had Chris Brown motion in on a couple of times to be that sort of extra blocker in there in the backfield. I mean, I just thought that was great. Anything from you, Lars? No, I think we covered it. All right, so now we're going to go into the offseason with a, a, a pretty major controversy uh, quarterback battle between Malik Zaire and Everett Golson. Um, you know, lots of talk about Golson and all these teams interested in him. Although, you know, we kind of know he doesn't really have anywhere to go as of right now because he hasn't graduated. He won't graduate until May, which means he has to stick around for the spring and, and battle it out for this uh, starting position. You know, I would say as probably my last podcast after the USC game, I, I was still kind of more in Golson's corner. I think watching Zaire in this bowl game changed my perspective on this a little bit. The only thing I'll say about that is, um, you know, I think if you see a young quarterback play and he doesn't play very well, it's not necessarily the end of the world. It happens a lot. Um, it happens all over the country. The guy can improve. But when you see a player like Zaire have the game like he did against LSU, it's not necessarily indicative of him becoming a superstar, you know, in the snap of a finger, but it's a pretty good sign that he is going to be, you know, at minimum, uh, probably a very good quarterback uh, at the college level and for Notre Dame. So um, I thought that was really encouraging to see. And, 
you know, like I said in that last podcast, I, I probably would have said Golson would probably win this job no matter what in the spring. Uh, now I'm not so sure. What do you think, Phil? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a no matter what. I, at the same time, I, I don't think that this game can be a complete and utter referendum on the offense under Everett Golston. I mean, the thing that you saw in this game, not just Zaire playing well, but the offensive line probably had their best game of the season since the first half of F, uh, against Florida State. Right. You know, when he had a pocket, you saw him stepping straight up into the pocket. He wasn't doing his little side-to-side drift thing. He was stepping straight up and delivering balls with accuracy. You know, he did not have the commitment to the run game, except maybe in that first half against FSU that they had in this game to, to take some of that pressure off, off his back. I mean, if you think about it, we went into every game in the last month basically conceding that we're going to go in and do a shootout. Eventually, when you start doing all these shootouts, you're going to get shot, and it's not going to happen, and it's not going to end well for you. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's what it came down to. I think that everybody else around him also had a great game, around Zaire as well. I think Golson's still the guy. I think he is. Now, Lars, you think um, this is kind of a dangerous situation for Golson. I mean, you know, a lot of people have attacked his leadership and stuff like that. I, I tend to stay away from that stuff. We're not inside the locker room. We don't see what the coaches see. However, it does seem like or it feels like um, from our vantage point on the outside looking in that Malik Sayer is significantly better in those categories, and you know people will talk, say things like, "Well, when Zaire's in the game, the offensive line kind of responds a little bit more." And uh, we'll talk about you know the offense and maybe the scheme here in a little bit, but uh, maybe talk about Zaire's uh, edge and uh, the off the field stuff. Yeah, um, well, I'd, I'd certainly say this: there's no doubt that Zaire has something there that that's pretty special and it's hard to measure um, but you can just see a real fire in his eyes and uh, certainly I think the team reacts to that and I think uh, um, you know he does have strong leadership skills no doubt about that I don't think it's a zero-sum game where if Malik Zaire has strong leadership skills Everett Golson can't have strong leadership skills eh? so I don't think it's that necessarily but he's a pretty special kid um, I thought you know, I thought Golson was about where I expected him to be this year. In fact, I would say probably the ceiling was a little bit higher this year with him. Um, yeah. You know, I, he did a good job. I expected him to have ups and downs. I expected him to be inconsistent. The USC game was, you know, not a great game, but that was, you know, Phil said, and I think he raised a good point, that the whole team played well against LSU. I would say the opposite was true against USC. There was a lot of poor play, and it certainly wasn't just Everett Golson. Um you know, my concern would be the confidence thing probably at the end a little bit. Um, you know, I think that's maybe a touch overrated. I don't know. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing with Everett Golson is his problems have always been mental. They, generally speaking, haven't been physical. Um, you know, you look at the trouble that he got into academically, those are more mental things. You look at uh, the way he played this year when he was carrying the ball all the time like a loaf of bread, wasn't necessarily a physical problem, it was more of a concentration problem. Um, and, you know, some of the, like Phil talked about, the dancing around in the pocket, that sort of thing, a lot of those things were, were mental. So, and that's pretty typical for a second-year starting quarterback. Golson should be in a position where he's going to take off next year and have a phenomenal season. And uh, if Zaire hadn't have emerged, 
that's exactly what I would be talking about and saying I think this is going to happen. I think he's going to have a fabulous year. Um, and this to me is more credit to Zaire. He's really closed that gap. And I think that's less of a criticism on Golson and more of a comment on Zaire. Um, I still think that ultimately Golson's probably going to be the guy and he'll have a fabulous season. Um, <laughs> I hope Brian Kelly can figure out a way to play both quarterbacks. And I know how ridiculous that sounds, but... Um, uh, you know, I just see something special in both those guys. It's two good football players there. Yeah, and we knew going into this that Zaire was a, a different runner, a stronger runner, a more powerful runner. He ran the ball and absurd 22 times against LSU, gained 96 yards, scored a touchdown, even threw a block for uh, Folston on his touchdown run. Uh, obviously, you know, his running skills are tantalizing for this offense. However, in this bowl game, I mean, he was 12 of 15, I think, I want to say both of those uh, Robinson drops were on Zaire's throws. Um, you know, the one was pretty tough. The other one I thought was a little bit more catchable, but 12 of 15 with two drops. Um, you know, he didn't throw the ball downfield a whole lot. He only had 96 yards on those 12 completions. But, you know, for me, for where I'm coming from, and I'm trying to think of what Brian Kelly's thinking, you know, this was a this is a big step forward for Malik Zaire as a passer. What do you think, Phil? I mean... Yeah, I, I agree with you. He, he was able to pass the ball in traffic, but at the same time, you know, I, I, he, he has a cannon. I, I don't think there's any debating that. If you watch the slant he threw to, to Wolf Fuller, I, I think I agree with the commentator right there that, that that pass essentially would have knocked him over if he wasn't planted for it. But <laughs> with that being said, you know, I've never seen him in a live game throw a ball that really needed some real touch, you know, real, one of those really arcing drop it in the bucket you know, 40 yards downfield sort of passes. I don't know if that's his skill set or if he can just throw these scissors in the short passing game to complement his ability to run the ball. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot. It's just the, the, the statistician of me wants to say that the sample size is just far too low to, to far too small to anoint him yet as, as a, the guy, I guess, you will, if you will. So, you know, we're going to go into the offseason uh, with this quarterback controversy and – with the way Brian Kelly usually runs things, he doesn't name a quarterback after the spring, which probably means we're going to be heading into fall ball with the quarterback controversy continuing unless Everett Golson does end up transferring after he graduates. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. It sounds like both of you think that Golson's going to be sticking around as well. So, you know, a lot of the talk's now going to be moving towards, you know, are we going to see the type of offense that we saw against LSU? Too, which was kind of a power spread. You know, I'm very fond of this offense. Um, what do you think, Lars? Do you think maybe if he's going to play two quarterbacks, it, this is naturally going to drift towards more of that system? Yeah, probably. I mean, uh, first of all, you know, I love running the football and I love imposing your will and I love power football and all that. But I personally have never had a problem with the way Brian Kelly's run the offense. I think you tailor the offense, you have a basic concept that you want to do but you have to tailor the offense to the skill set of your team and one of the things people forget that if we're going to run a power offense that's great but that's going to mean less touches for guys like Will Fuller and Corey Robinson and Chris Brown and those talented receivers uh, so that's something that, that needs to be understood as well there's some I mean I'm not sure I don't know if we've ever had this deep of a receiving core at Notre Dame I'm sure we have you know somewhere back in the 80s and 90s but it's been a while that's a pretty good group of receivers and uh, for us to say that uh, 
that we're going to run power football and, you know, maybe only throw the ball 15 to 20 times a game, boy, we're, we have some pretty talented players that we're not using. So I hope we run the ball more. I, <laughs> I know this is, you know, I know this is what Brian Kelly would like, but I know it's tough to do. But I hope that we can do both reasonably well. But, yeah, I, I think there needs to be uh, an emphasis on running the ball. And specifically, I think the critical component from an X's and O's perspective, the way Brian Kelly runs his offense, is the quarterback needs to be a threat to run. And Everett Golson next year is going to need to be able to pull the ball and not fumble the darn thing. And uh, and make some good decisions. So uh, so yeah, I'd like to see us run run more for sure. I like that style of football. I think there's some advantages to it. But uh, you know, I think we're going to need to air it out sometimes. I think we're going to need to put some points on the board. And it really would be nice to to use those receivers as much as possible. Yeah, seeing so, you know, a lot of people get hung up on the stats and kind of the run pass ratio. You know, in the bowl game, I don't think that's really tenable at all. We ran the ball 66% of the time. I mean, I, there's no way you're going to have a quarterback run the ball 22 times a game and have him survive a season. Yeah, no um, doubt. You know, I would, I would tend to say I think with Brian Kelly, 58 to maybe 60% is kind of the upper limits. If we ran the ball 58% in 2012. I think if you have Zaire in there, as a starter, let's just say he's starting, and you know, I think you could probably get up around the 60% range, but no, not higher than that. That'd probably be around 45 rushing attempts and 30 passes a game, which I think, you know, I think that's doable. I think that would be comfortable. Like, like you said, you're taking away from some of the receivers. I think maybe if you're doing the power spread, you might want to get the ball into Pro Size's hands on jet sweeps a little bit more. He had 10 attempts this past season. I think you might want to double that. Uh, at minimum next year. So uh, what are your thoughts on the whole offensive scheme, Phil? Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with Lars that you got to somehow find a balance here because you do you got to tailor it to the personnel you have. The personnel that you have right now, the personnel that you can kind of assume Notre Dame is traditionally going to get. I mean, they call us tight end you. Sometimes I feel like we, we need to act like it a little more. You know, Let's generate some of this power. We're going to get big linemen. We're going to get decent backs, and we're going to get superior tight ends. Tight ends that can catch, yeah, so let's you know, bring those guys. Those can be our, our inside sort of receivers but and have those other more talented guys on the outside. Um, and you also have some big physical receivers as well. Take a guy like C.J. Prosize. I mean, he led the team with 109 all-purpose yards in the bowl game. He had 75 rush, rush yards and 34 receiving yards. I mean, I just feel like the power spread – if, if it can be done right with, with maybe a little bit of a lean towards the pass, could uh, could really complement just just the, the just the physical makeup of this team, not even just from a strictly strategic point. And we talked about someone like Will Fuller, how maybe the power spread would take away from his talents. Is it kind of strange that for how electric he is with the ball in his hands that he doesn't really get the ball on any of those jet sweeps or motioning into the backfield? I know he's... He's not very big. He's probably the skinniest player on the whole team. But, um, you know, I think that's a little bit uh, of an interesting uh, dynamic for him. I don't know if maybe they're going to start breaking him into that role next year, although there's going to be a bunch of other guys who are going to want some touches in that role as well. What do you think, Lars? Um, yeah, no, it's a good question. You know what? I uh, I ran the, the fly offense in uh, high school for 
when I coached in high school for a number of years and our philosophy was that uh, we could run the sweep out of any position and all our players needed to be able to uh, to run that sweep and big guys small guys uh, we wanted to and our high school is a little bit different you know in high school high school quarterbacks you're dealing sometimes with quarterbacks who have a difficult time to get the ball in the receivers hands and you know you're dealing with weather up here in Canada that sort of thing so we wanted to make sure that if we couldn't effectively pass the ball we had another way to get the ball in the hands of our receivers and the sweep was that um, so you know I could see Fuller doing that type you know I'm not sure what the rationale is there because um, he does run uh, he runs those those wide receiver screens and he he always runs them back right into the teeth of the defense, and you just cringe the whole time, you, you know, wondering if when a linebacker is going to catch him coming back across the middle and just destroy him and, you know, <laughs> he implodes. But uh, So, yeah, I think he could do it, but I think that's just kind of philosophically something that the, the staff only really runs that play with the, uh, with the running backs and with the slots. But uh, I wouldn't be stunned to see that change next year, and I'd love to see him do some of that. Or even wind him out on a reverse, right? Run that sweep motion and, uh, and reverse it back with Fuller because he, he's electric. So, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the staff try him with it. And, I, you know, yes, he's a small guy, but if you can run screens the way he runs a screen, you can certainly run the sweep. Uh, before we transition to our last topic here, I just want to mention that today Notre Dame secured the commitment of Alizé Jones, uh, the number one tight end of the country. He got he flipped him from UCLA. It's kind of been a long time coming. Uh, not not much of a surprise in the recruiting world. That kind of stocks Notre Dame's tight ends to full capacity. They're going to be a very young group next year. They're going to lose Ben Koyak. Um, he's a true senior. He'll be uh, moving on to the NFL. <laughs> They'll have uh, Mike Hurman, uh, Durham Smith, Tyler Luatua, Nick Wisher, and now Jones adding to the fold. So that's five tight ends. Still not sure what's going on with Herman or Hireman. Sorry, I'm not sure if he's still injured or what's going on with him. But uh, Durham Smith got a little bit of playing time this year, only caught one pass. Um, seems to be a pretty decent blocker for a young kid, good size. Um, you know, our listeners probably know a lot more about Luatua, who's more, more of an H-back role. Nick Wisher, kind of more in that Tyler Eifert role, split out wide, uh, pass catching. And Jones is kind of, uh, you know, the more advanced version of Tyler Eifert at this juncture. Uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, a power spread taking uh, away from the uh, receivers, and Phil talked about the tight end position already. Um, just another, di another uh, diamond for our Notre Dame to use next year. Most of the recruiting experts think that uh, Jones is going to play right away as a true freshman, which is pretty pretty amazing seeing how he's got three or four uh, uh, older players ahead of him. What do you, you think is going to happen next year with this position, Phil? Well, I mean, I, I liked what I saw out of Durham Smythe. I liked, you know, Tyler to it in that blocking role. But, I mean, there were there, there was one particular play, I believe it was on um, Golson's first series in the bowl game, where we had a two tight ends set and Koyak essentially stayed and blocked, but Smith, or Smith, however you say his name, I think ran like a sort of like a drag route across the formation, you know, and was able to get open sort of in the flat. They eventually went to the sideline. But I think that, you know, if you have these guys who who are very effective in the pass game, I could see Jones having that sort of role. You know, he comes into the backfield. If, he's, if he can be an effective blocker, he'll block. But if, you know, but at the same time, if he can use his hands, he'll go out. For the, for the past, I think that that's an effective... I mean, um, 
I think that's yeah, the, pretty much an effective way these guys can be used. What do you think, Lars? What what do you, what do you think is going on with the tight ends? Going to be a young group next year. Yeah, play them, play them, play them. You know, and and unfortunately, one of the things that we struggle with in Notre Dame football is, and Ben Koyak's a perfect example. I mean, at one point, he was leading the entire team, and I think close to leading the entire NCAA in the number of snaps that he had played. Um, and we had some talent there, but we play such a tough schedule. The games are so close that these young guys tend to not get an opportunity to play, and we kind of rely on, on the senior players, and I get that. But at some point, we got to just start playing these guys. And yes, they're going to make some mistakes. Yes, there's going to be some growing pains. But uh, in the long term, it's really going to be a benefit. So I hope to see uh, two tight end sets. I hope to see. Uh, I really like that kind of tight end wing look that we that we use, and a lot of teams are using. I think defensively, that makes it. There's a lot of little nuances that are really tough to defend, and it really allows you to to run downhill, off tackle, out of that pistol set, and and give you some some really different looks. So I like it. I hope we use that talent, and I hope that uh, that Coach Kelly, you know, doesn't kind of get conservative with it. Um, yeah, play those young guys, let those horses run, and let them make some mistakes and and grow. All right, we're gonna move to our last topic here. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about the defense at all, and uh, we're going to have a, a serious talk about the defense right now. We're going to talk about what they need to improve on for next year. Um, you know, tons of injuries. Um, they look good in the beginning of the year. Everything kind of fell apart. Um, statistically, in a lot of categories, this was the worst defense in Notre Dame history. Um, you know, the 2009 season kind of held that title for a long time. Uh, that 09 defense gave up. 25.9 points per game. I, I think you could make the argument that the game is a little bit more different and more offensively driven even five or six years later. But uh, Notre Dame gave up 29.2 points per game this year, um, gave up significantly more points than that 2009 offense. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of areas for this defense to improve on. Let's talk about, you know, maybe two or three that you think that. Notre Dame needs to improve on uh, starting here in the spring, getting right after it with some more of a healthy roster. Who's, who's up first? Yeah. You go ahead, Phil. All right. Um, well, the first thing, I guess, is, is I mean, it's got to be fundamentals. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, somebody, if anybody was counting, I'm sure they will count a long time ago, how many arm tackles guys from Northwestern and everywhere else were running through and, you know, guys being in a position, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, it has to do with, you know, there's injuries and all that sort of stuff. But you had guys who were in positions to make plays. Maybe they weren't in the exact right position, but they weren't making plays um, when they needed to. Um, that's something that I think, you know, I wonder if, you know, maybe when Brian Van Gorder came in, he didn't spend a lot of time working on the mentals because he was spending so much time installing uh, a fairly, you know, a, a really complex defense. You know, that was sort of something that, that happened. Um, I mean, there's also a couple of other personnel things. Like, we, up in the Michigan game especially, I remember Colin Hill. You know, he was talked about all the time about how he was, you know, especially going after going after the quarterback and all this stuff. And what happened to him? I don't know if, if he was injured or, or what, but he sort of fell off radar uh, pretty precipitously uh, at some point somewhere around the middle of the season. Um, and outside of that, I, I there's not much I can take away or really give towards a discussion 
about this defense because I think that just the injuries were so bizarre, and there were so many of them in such a you know in such a short frame of time that you can't. I feel like not, none of the statistics or none of, none of the analysis that can be can be done from this season is going to really be meaningful in terms of planning for next year. Yeah, Colin Hill was one of those interesting players. He had five tackles in the Michigan and Purdue games, and then he only had two tackles the rest of the season. He probably had fewer than 20 snaps, maybe, I'd say, the rest of the year. That's kind of an inter- interesting decision, especially with all those injuries up front. What do you think, Lars? I know you got a lot of thoughts on this topic. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the injuries are obvious and they're they're true, and I think that's one of the differences with 2009. I mean, this was a defense that started off pretty good and and was having a lot of success, and then had a lot of injuries and was young, and and you know, young players fade as a long season goes along. That's that's just the the truth of the matter. So I think it's a little different from 2009 in that sense. It certainly has a different feel. I think there's a lot more hope uh, there than there's a lot more potential and talent there. Um, you know, one of the things to just to remember is is not only I mean the injuries were devastating, but we lost key players and key leaders at each level: the defensive line, the linebackers, and the secondary. And imagine if we went back to 2012, which was a very good defense, but not a very deep defense. And imagine if you took uh, Lewis Moore out of injured him, Manti Teo, and Zeke Mata. Well, how do you think that defense would do? I think it would be one that would struggle. And certainly, although the players that got injured for Notre Dame this year maybe weren't at the caliber, obviously, of a Manti Teo, you certainly lost your best players on the defensive line, your best player, arguably anyways, in Joe Schmidt at linebacker, and uh, you know some of your best players in the secondary, in Cody, Cody Riggs and a key leader in Collinsworth. So... You know, that that hurt. I think for me the biggest concern and the biggest problem was lack of pass rush. And, uh, you know, that's partially because of injuries, but it's more than that. I don't think in the front seven and even in the secondary there's any great pass rushers. And I know people will be like, why is Lars talking about people from the secondary as pass rushers? But uh, in Brian Van Gorder's scheme... The secondary, especially guys who play the nickel, need to be able to rush the passer because they blitz a lot. And if you watched Onawalu and and Farley and those guys, there wasn't a whole lot in terms of pass rush move. Their pass rush move was basically to run into whoever was blocking them and kind of jump up and down and try and and bat a pass, which wasn't overly effective. Even a guy like Jalen Smith, who's a great athlete, doesn't have a whole lot in his pass rushing toolkit and the defensive line um, certainly the front four couldn't generate pressure and and it was horrible against USC and it was uh, you know that really really hurt Notre Dame so Notre Dame is going to have to find a way to generate pass rush and the problem is um, you know, I mean, we had success early in the year when teams were kind of confused by the scheme and we'd have guys coming free and, and that sort of thing, and you didn't see that in the second half of the season. And people say, well, people, other teams figured out Van Gorder's scheme, and, and that's partially true, but also Notre Dame just didn't have the horses. They weren't playing as fast, and uh, if you're going to be an effective team, you're going to be a team that effectively rushes the passer, Guys have to get off blocks, and guys have to beat blocks, and you cannot rely on the scheme to give you free shots at the quarterback. And uh, and so that's a big problem for the Irish defense. Uh, they're going to need to find some pass rushers. And you know what? Right now, I don't see them on the uh, on the roster. We've got some good guys, but there's 
and we've got guys with speed and athleticism, but there's nobody that I would look at on third down in a passing situation that it's like, this guy's going to take his pass rush to the next level, and he will pressure the quarterback. Um, I don't know if we have any of those guys. We've got lots of guys who will lock up, who will do a good job, who will be disciplined in their pass rush, and, and they're, they're good pass rushers, but we definitely don't have any great pass rushers, and that's a big concern. You know, it's funny. I saw a tweet from one of the uh, official Notre Dame football people. I don't remember who exactly it was, but it said something to the effect of uh, 14 different players had at least one sack, and that was the first time in X amount of years that that many players had a sack. I mean, I guess that's kind of... You can look at that uh, any way you want, I guess. Like, you could probably say, well, there's no dominant pass rusher. I mean, Jalen Smith and uh, Matthias Farley led the, the team with three and a half sacks. So, um, you know, I would probably side with you on that, Lars. You probably need to develop more of a dominant pass rusher uh, somewhere on the roster and not have to rely on so many different people to try to get their you know, every once in a while. Um, so we saw the, the defense, you know, play pretty well through the first five games uh, this past season in 2014. And then with all the injuries and people figuring out the scheme, um, it kind of floated back uh, the other way, and they were pretty bad in the second half of the season. My last question for you guys before we get out of here is, we know there's going to be a lot of bodies coming back for this defense, basically only going to be losing... Cody Riggs, um, Austin Collinsworth, uh, who didn't really play a whole lot this past season. Uh, am I forgetting anybody else? I think that's it. No, I yeah, Riggs, Collinsworth, some injured guys. And they're probably getting Kavari Russell back, probably getting Ishak Williams back. Tons of bodies coming back. Where are you setting your own personal expectations for this defense? Are you expecting them to be kind of more of what we saw in the early 2014 being quite good, or do you think, you know, with some of the problems and the issues, that they're just going to be kind of an okay defense? I hope they're going to be better than bad. Let's let's put it that way. What about what do you think, Phil? Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think they, they have a potential to be 20 early 2014 and better. I mean, I'm I, the guy who I'm quite frankly really excited about is Ishan Williams. If he if he comes back. I mean, we haven't seen him rush the passer in the past, but then it wasn't his job in Diaco's defense. His job was to be that outside linebacker who had a lot of coverage responsibilities and that sort of stuff. I'm excited to see him. Here's your job. Go get the quarterback. Put him in the ground. But let's do that. And I'm really excited to see if he can pull it off. And I think if he can generate that, if he can be that guy, I think the defense stands a lot to uh, to improve. Yeah, he's going to be super interesting. I, I feel like he's going to be someone I'm going to write, write an article about. I actually was trying to study some of his film before this season to try to gauge where I thought he was going to be as a pass rusher. Um, you know, he's not going to be coming back till the summer, so he's going to be away from football for a long time. I know that's probably going to hurt him in the short term, but, you know, who knows? Maybe he's re going to be re reworking his body. Um, you know, maybe he's getting a little bit quicker off the edge. Um so, yeah, he's definitely kind of a, a guy who could be uh, someone that comes in and just blows people away and lives up to his potential. Um, let's hope so. What do you think, Lars? What are, you, what are you kind of looking at where this defense stands heading into spring ball and what you kind of hope for in the, in, in the fall? I think it's probably going to be an adequate defense. I don't know if it's going to be a great defense. Um, I love the speed that we have on the field. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm worried about the lack of depth in certain spots. I think the secondary 
uh, has the potential to be absolutely fabulous um, and could be a real strength. Um, you know, I'm obviously not sold on our D-line yet. I think there's some good solid players there, but I'm definitely worried about the depth there. We'll see. Um, I also want to just comment on, because a lot of people talk about the scheme of the defense and it being too complex and that sort of thing. Uh, I think that's a little bit misleading. I think what people don't understand is that uh, defensive schemes, you know, I watched a lot of what they did, and it wasn't, it wasn't that exotic and it wasn't that complex. What makes defense complex these days is the offenses that you have to play and how many subtle little adjustments and and uh, different formations that they have and what's really what's really difficult nowadays is an offense will come out in a certain formation you'll get ready to go you'll have all your align you'll get everyone lined up you know what you're supposed to do and then all of a sudden they switch they stop and then they change the play and they switch their formation and now you got to recalibrate everything and that's really hard to do and you have to be able to you have to have mastery over the defense which can be difficult the other thing I just want to mention really quick that might be a future topic of the post people always talk about the middle linebacker and how Joe Schmidt had to line everybody up and and that's part of it but that's really wasn't what they were missing from the middle linebacker position. The middle linebacker position in Brian Van Gorder's defense is required to do a lot. So for example, they'll run a lot of overload blitzes. So they'll take extra guys, put them on one side of the formation and blitz them with the idea that they're just going to bring more guys than the offense can block. That leaves some natural holes away from the overload blitz side. And if you watch Van Gorder's defense, often the middle linebacker will line up on the overload side. He'll have responsibilities if the play comes that way, but he's also responsible if the play goes to away from the overload blitz to get over there and make a play. And that's really the key, one of the key components to this defense is you need a guy who can not only do his job on the overload side of the defense, but he can make plays all the way on the other side. And uh, Niles Morgan did a good job, but a freshman's not going to be able to do that. So that's going to be another key piece to this is can Joe Schmidt come back healthy or can Morgan step in or, or someone? Because you need a linebacker, you need at least one linebacker in this defense who can do more than just one position. And people will say Jalen Smith is that guy, and, and he might be. He wasn't last year. He wasn't quite ready for it. Maybe he will be next year. So I think that's another little little subplot to watch for is, uh, is do they have a guy at linebacker who can do not only his job, but really in essence do somebody else's job as well. Hey, with the uh, spring ball coming up, um, I just saw this before we hopped on on Twitter. Jaron Jones just tweeted out, more surgery in the AM, so I would assume that he's not going to be ready for spring ball. You think that's probably what's going to happen, Phil? Um, yeah, I mean, again, not having seen any of the specifics of his, you know, his history, but I, I think that when I first wrote the article that I posted on him, is that he, we weren't projecting at that point anyway that he was going to make spring ball, um, even if he didn't have that surgery. Um, so I think that he was. This this is. I mean, he might be set back a little in terms of, of an absolute sense, but in terms of making spring ball, I don't think that that has changed, uh, that, that timeline has changed. All right, I think that's going to wrap up our podcast. We'll probably do a podcast uh, right before National Signing Day, which is a few weeks away. Uh, Notre Dame's at 23 verbal commits, probably going to add a couple more players. Hopefully there's not 
more than one or two decommits. There always seems to be one or two every year. We've been uh, been good so far, knock on wood. Anything you guys want to say before we get out of here? Yeah, I'll just say uh, let BK know that if they get stuck at running back or safety, I've probably got one more year of eligibility left. So <laughs> I, I can play both ways. All right, Phil. Hey, I'm just uh, I'm excited. I'm ex- I mean, hey, this was cool. I had fun. All right, this uh, 47th podcast. We'll be back in a couple weeks talking more recruiting and any other news that pops up on uh, Notre Dame's radar. I'm Eric Murtaugh. That's Lars and Phil. You know I'm on the site as Young Curmudgeon, and we are out of here. Go Irish. Thank you.